Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the stories we were waiting for this past week was the fate of President Trump's ban on Facebook. Facebook's oversight board ruled that for now, the ban will remain. The board ruled that Facebook was justified in banning Trump, but took issue with the indefinite suspension, calling it vague and uncertain. They gave Facebook six months to decide if the ban is permanent and also to fully explain their decision. In the meantime, President Trump has launched his own site where you can get his statements in a Twitter-like format. For more on why Trump remains banned on Facebook, we'll speak to Heather Kelly, technology reporter at The Washington Post. They came back with this sort of split decision. The way the board is set up, and again, it is created and funded by Facebook. The people on it are chosen by Facebook, but it is considered this sort of separate entity. And the way it's set up is that they have two parts to every decision. The first is binding, not legally, but like, I don't know, a gentleman's agreement with Facebook that Facebook will do whatever the first part is. And that is if it's going to overrule its ban or uphold it. And in this case, it did uphold the ban of Trump. And the second part is a series of policy recommendations. And Facebook is considering its suggestion that it go back to the drawing board and come up with a different punishment as a policy recommendation. And that means it actually doesn't have to abide by it, but it is going to have a public reply sometime in the next 30 days. So they gave them six months to come back with this new plan on it. And basically, they said that when they suspended him, it was vague and uncertain. They should have decided we're either going to permanently ban you or not. So that's kind of where that whole thing lies. The president did respond and say that free speech has been taken away from the president of the United States. But, you know, we, as we remember, this all goes back to the riots on the on the Capitol from January 6th and, and a lot of the statements that he was uh, posting on his social media. So what were the specific things that they were ruling on, uh, the, the specific posts? They did look at the two posts he made on or around January 6th. They also did look back at past posts, but those weren't taken as much into consideration. It was really about the final decision and what it included. And in those posts, he had expressed support for the people at the Capitol. Now, in a letter to the board, kind of written on his behalf to defend him, it said that any Trump supporters that were there that day were peaceful and nonviolent and that there were outside agitators involved. So that's sort of his defense for the post that day and that they were misconstrued. Talk to me a little bit about the deliberations that the oversight board took, because we're months away from the actual uh, day that they banned him now. And why did this uh, take so long? So when the board was created, it's really interesting. They've given it this whole fake legal structure, including all the bureaucracy and, and rules that come with that. They it's kept referring it to mm-hmm. as like the Supreme Court of Facebook decisions or whatever. Exactly. Except, again, zero legal standing. It's just <laughs> it's just, you know, just humans getting together, to discuss things. So what happens is it's all written in these bylaws, which explains how the board is going to work. They were agreed upon between the board and Facebook and Facebook or individuals can recommend cases to the board. It's heard fewer than 10 at this point, so it's not exactly reviewing every major decision. And then it has 90 days to go over that. So this was reviewed to the, or referred to them probably at the end of January. And so they had three months. They made a panel of five people. Five of the 20 board members were specifically focused on this one case. And then they had a slight extension at the end, and they take it to the whole board, and then the whole board discusses it and tries to agree on it as a majority. 
Now, President Trump on Tuesday, before this decision came through, launched his own social media blog type website from the desk of Donald J. Trump. And in it, it just looks like a very parsed down Twitter, let's say. It's just a, a bunch of his musings, uh, statements, things like that going back a couple months. But on that site, there's a feature where users can share those posts to Facebook, Twitter, things like that. Has Facebook or Twitter even said anything with regards to this? Because he's obviously banned still, but his statements are going to be starting to flood those sites, I'm, I'm assuming. Yeah, so until now, he's been able to release press releases, basically. And then those have been covered by news outlets or sent out in emails. There wasn't anything too much stopping them from appearing on social media. People could copy and paste them or share them themselves. What Twitter and Facebook, but Twitter especially, had was this rule that there was no way to try and wiggle around your ban by using somebody else's account. And what remains to be seen is if it will consider this an attempt to get around the ban. Now, as you mentioned, it's kind of a social media site. At this point, I would compare it more to like an old WordPress blog. It's <laughs> right, a simple yeah. post. There's a heart on there, but you can't really tell what happens if you click the heart. It's not like there's a count for them. But there is a share button for Facebook and Twitter. I looked up one of his more recent posts. It had about 18 shares on Facebook right after it went up. So I think a lot depends on how much traction they get, if it takes off, if people are paying attention. And only then will it really be worth their time to cause a bit of a fuss over them. Last question on all of this, because as you mentioned, it's kind of like a split decision where we're at. The president remains banned. Facebook has to go back to the drawing board, figure out exactly what they want to do and why. The oversight board didn't want to have to make that part of the decision. Are we going to be seeing this more with Facebook, where the oversight board takes a bigger presence in a lot of these decisions? Is it going to trickle over to other social media giants as well? I think the other social media companies are all waiting and watching. They could decide that, hey, this is working. It's helping Facebook avoid regulation. It's helping it avoid blowback for decisions by outsourcing them. We should do that, too. Or it could do something else. It could actually wait for the new policies that Facebook adopts because the board, again, is coming up with these really long and thorough policy recommendations. And the other companies could be like, you know what, that's a, that's a good policy idea. Why don't we just do that as well? Or they could just stick with their current plan, which is, you know what, we've banned him. We stick by it. We're not going to go through this big public showing to justify it. Heather Kelly, technology reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Also this week, the fighting between Liz Cheney, the number three Republican in the House, and the GOP intensified. Her days may be numbered as Republican conference chair. After calling out former President Trump again for statements he made about the 2020 election, party leadership is saying that they are concerned about her ability to carry out the message in preparation for the midterm elections. A vote could be held this coming week on whether to oust her from her leadership position. For more on what to know about this Republican divide, we'll speak to Daniel Flatley, congressional reporter at Bloomberg News. This all sort of goes back to January 6th, obviously, and, and also some of the rhetoric leading up to the certification of the Electoral College results, uh, where we saw the riot at the U.S. Capitol. Um, and Cheney has been really outspoken over the last several weeks about former President Donald Trump's role in uh, encouraging his supporters to march to the Capitol and using um, rhetoric like fight like hell and things like that, that during the impeachment trial we had earlier this year, it was argued that that, that was you know, what led to the riot occurring. So it's not so much that uh, Cheney has said this or even that she voted to impeach former President Trump earlier this year. It's that she's been continuously asked about this and has not shied away from responding in very strong terms about 
how she views what President Trump did, or former President Trump, I should say, did, and what she views his role in the Republican Party, and she and she feels that she, that he should have no role going forward. Many of her colleagues feel differently, and so she is once again facing potentially a motion to have her removed as GOP conference chair in the House. She survived an earlier attempt to oust her in February, but there's there's certainly a lot of discussion about that uh, potentially happening again or a vote on that happening again. So we'll see when Congress comes back next week what happens. Former President Trump put out a statement calling uh, Joe Biden's presidency the big lie. And Liz Cheney responded on, on Twitter. She said, hey, you know, anyone that's claiming this is helping to spread that big lie, turning it back on him, saying you're turning your back on the rule of law and poisoning our democratic system. Trump responded to that, said, you know, uh, people I mean, don't even like you. That's kind of a familiar tactic of his. Kevin McCarthy, the leader of Republicans in the House, said he's just hearing from members and they, they're not confident in her ability to carry out the message. They're looking towards the midterms and they're still betting big that President Trump supporters and his support will win them back the majority. So this is where they just he says at least that they've lost all confidence in her. There's a lot going on. Uh, right now. You know, certainly Kevin McCarthy wants to be Speaker of the House. And in order to get that position, he needs to uh, lead the Republicans to victory in 2022 during the midterm elections. Now, history would seem to be on his side because the party that's in opposition uh, usually comes back in a midterm year. Obviously, President Biden won last year in the 2020 election. And so Kevin McCarthy is really hoping to be Speaker and he's hoping to lead the GOP to victory in the 2020 to midterms. And I think he feels that in order to do that, he needs to have everybody on the same message. And he views certainly um, Liz Cheney as sort of uh, deviating from that message. And he wants to get everybody on the same page. And I think that it reflects how uh, much of a grip the uh, former president still has on the Republican Party, particularly in the House. It's a little bit different in the Senate. And that's kind of what's so interesting about this, because Liz Cheney's position is not that much different from Senator Mitch McConnell's. Uh, He, after the impeachment, of course, he voted to acquit the president. But after that vote, he lambasted uh, former President Donald Trump on the Senate floor, said he could be uh, uh, perhaps, um, you know, subject to criminal prosecution and and all sorts of other things. So he's been out there with some of this same rhetoric, although he hasn't been as, uh, as vocal about it in recent weeks. So. There's a lot going on there. And, and the other thing that I was thinking about it in terms of this story, is, which is interesting, is that, you know, one of the reasons why the Republicans lost their majority in 2018 is because they lost ground with suburban women. And, you know, they've long been criticized for not having more women involved in the party and not having more women involved in leadership. So for them to take the one uh, woman in Republican leadership and, and kick her out, essentially, uh, while sort of you know trying to make up some of this ground with uh, suburban voters and suburban women voters, you, you know they're going to have some difficulty in trying to square that message. So there's right. there's a few different dynamics at play here. Yeah, and Liz Cheney for herself, pretty reliable on the conservative policy issues. She's spoken out against things that Joe Biden wants to get implemented, but this mostly seems to be about Trump and his hold on the party because, as I mentioned, she's a reliable conservative. If they're going to coalesce around a, a message, why wouldn't it be about policy things? And it really all just seems to go back to the former president. I mean, if you had asked me about this uh, a couple of weeks ago, I would have said, 
The Cheney-McCarthy dust-up is is long over. President Trump's hold on the party, or former President Trump, I should say, his, his hold on the party is rapidly waning. You know, he's no longer on Twitter. He's not on Facebook. He's, you know, sending out press releases from Florida, which right. don't have the same impact as some of his earlier sort of missives. Yeah, some of that noise um, has definitely think- died down and all of that. It has, but I think what you're seeing now is, you know, maybe, you know, maybe it's maybe we were premature in thinking that his power was on the wane. I think tomorrow or, or in the coming days, uh, Facebook is supposed to make a decision about whether he will be allowed back on the platform. I don't know whether the McCarthy's comments are kind of timed to that, but there is sort of a sense that, you know, this struggle is is not over. Now, I should note that Liz Cheney survived that earlier attempt by. Uh, 145 to 61. So those who were, you know, forecasting her demise were were way off. So she may, you know, live to fight another day. The story is far from over, but um, the struggle is far from over in terms of whether President Trump or former President Trump still has that stronghold on the GOP. This uh, recent episode would seem to suggest that he still does have quite a hold on it. Daniel Flatley, congressional reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. As we continue to try to get as many people vaccinated in the country, drug makers and labs are already working on the next generation of COVID vaccines, and they could be coming in the form of a pill or nasal spray. Researchers also hope to work on a universal vaccine to provide protection against all types of coronaviruses. For more on this next generation of COVID-19 vaccines, we'll speak to Gregory Zuckerman, special writer at The Wall Street Journal. So the thing to remember is the ones that are out there right now are quite effective. Um, yeah, exactly. One can even wonder, there's an argument or there's a question as to why we need more. But there are still ways to improve. Um, as many of us know, the existing vaccines need to be kept, or at least some of them, the mRNA ones, like uh, the Pfizer and Moderna ones, need to be kept at cold temperatures, transported at cold temperatures. And that's difficult, not just in the United States, but especially in other kinds of countries where they don't have the uh, cold chain technology that we do. So that's one of the areas of emphasis for some of these other kind of companies. And it's not just companies, it's also scientists, as you mentioned, in government, but also um, academia as well, trying to create vaccines that don't need to be kept at the same cold temperatures. We lucked out really well, as you mentioned, with Pfizer and Moderna being kind of right out of the bat, very effective, and and production started right away. But still, which I didn't know, there's 277 vaccines currently in in development globally. 93 of those have entered human trials already. So we're still expecting to see a lot more in the form of varieties of, of vaccines coming out. And as I mentioned, those oral pills and nasal sprays could be coming up next, which is exciting in a way where people don't have to take the shot. If they're hesitant about those things, they have other options now. Yeah, that's exactly right. There are all kinds of reasons why people are hesitant to take the vaccine. Some of them are more legitimate or based in science than others, but there is one issue that um, some people are reluctant to take a a needle uh, to the arm. And even though, you know, I can tell you from personal experience, uh, it's not painful whatsoever. It's less painful than most other vaccines I've had and other kinds of shots. But that said, that's uh, still an issue for some people. And yeah, there are some who are working on vaccines that would just use pills, which would be a real advantage. And hopefully we'll bring some of those more reluctant to take the vaccine uh, on board. And there are all kinds of interesting other approaches. Some government scientists I've talked to are looking to mix and match. So they call it the um, 
tricks. I'm thinking about how kids mix and match uh, cereals. Sometimes they look what's in the cupboard and they pick combinations of cereals. And some scientists call it the uh, Cocoa Puffs tricks experiment <laughs> where they're saying, hey, maybe we'll take a J&J to start with and then they bring in the Moderna one or maybe vice versa or maybe like BioNTech and then they'll switch to the Moderna one. So maybe there's some combination that can we, we can improve on the efficacy. And it's also important to remember that these aren't 100% effective vaccines. They're quite effective, uh, depending on the variant, you know, 80, 90% or even better. But there are always still ways to improve. And that's what they're experimenting on and trying to improve on. And obviously, we, we still need to wait the time to for these trials to go through on all that. But, you know, one of the questions I saw pills and nasal sprays, right? So that's, it gets kind of exciting on that front. Is that just as effective as a, a shot you take in the arm? Like I said, a, a pill, something that dissolves into your body, the nasal spray going through your nose, is that the same as something going in your arm? There's actually an argument that it could be more effective, especially in terms of the oral formulations. There are all kinds of different nasal spray formulations that are being worked on. I think seven are actually. And yeah, there's an argument that actually that would be even more effective because these are um, respiratory diseases and maybe the most effective vaccine is one where it's used with a nasal spray as opposed to a, a shot. It hasn't been proved yet. Interesting technology. We don't want to get too carried away. There are a bunch of companies, not small ones, but these aren't exactly big pharma companies. So a lot of them haven't proven themselves yet. They don't have vaccines or any other kind of therapeutics out in the market, but they are interesting technologies and interesting companies working on them. So the fingers are crossed that uh, either the nasal spray formulations or the others will be effective. Kind of the last question is, when would we start seeing some results from these clinical trials that are ongoing for some of these new possible vaccines? Even Walter Reed Army Institute of Research, they're looking at maybe making a coronavirus vaccine that would handle different types of coronaviruses, you know, one shot for kind of everything. You know, when can we start seeing some early data on this at least? Yeah, I think later this year we'll start seeing the data and we can start getting excited or less excited when we see that. And we won't really see the new approaches, new formulations, be it nasal or otherwise, till next year. But it's something to look forward to. And as you just suggested, I'm really excited about the idea of one vaccine that can take care of multiple coronaviruses. And that's what um, there's a gentleman, a doctor at University of Pennsylvania, Drew Weissman, working on that, and there are government and other types of scientists too. And the concern is that this may not be, unfortunately, the last pandemic we see, and we need to be better prepared. So if you have a pan coronavirus vaccine that can handle all kinds of coronaviruses. It's important to remember that we've had every five, 10 years, we've had a, a new outbreak. It's not always necessarily in the United States, but it's been elsewhere. We had MERS, we had SARS, we have this one, and we are worried about future ones. There's reason to think that there'll be more. These are resulting from the fact that man is encroaching on animals and in terms of where we live, and that'll increasingly happen, and we fly around the world, and that spreads things increasingly. So there's reason to be concerned, and there's reason to work on preparation, and those pan-coronavirus vaccines are a way to do that. Gregory Zuckerman, special writer at The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Of course, great to be here. Don't forget to join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.